Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Um, so we're going to be reading from the Bible, believe it or not. I know everyone's really shocked. Um, we're going to be reading Proverbs and then moving into uh, Matthew, which is where our sermon series is going to be taking off. And Jacko is going to be reading us the word. Um, To start off with, though, I'm reading from the NIV. Please feel free to use the Bibles in your pews. That's not going to go there. That's going to go there. There we go. Um, So to start off, I'll just start from Proverbs 8, 19 through 36. That's 995 if anyone's using the Bibles on their pews. So Proverbs 8, 19 through 36. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice, bestowing wealth on those who love me and making their treasures full. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works, before his deeds of old, as appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. When there were no oceans, I was given birth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the earth or its fields or any of the dust of the world, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with, de- with delight day after day, Rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not ignore it. Blessed is a man who listens to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. But whoever fails to find me harms himself. All who hate me love death. Moving into the New Testament and Matthew, we're going to be reading from Matthew uh, 4, 23 to 5, 12. So Matthew 4, 23. This is 1501. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all of those who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and sat, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Thank you very much for reading, Ruth. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, It's nice to see you here. If you don't know who I am, I am Simon. People call me Jacko, uh, because in Australia we give people nicknames. Uh, My last name is Jackson, I'm Jacko, there you go. Um, It's nice to see you all this morning, and this is a bit exciting, isn't it? Uh, New space. Um, If you've been with us here at City Light Church, North Adelaide, for, um, you know, more than a few years, you'll know that this is where we used to meet uh, in the evening, and and then when uh, COVID came in, uh, we moved online, we filmed from here. On the other side of our lockdown in 2020, we moved over to the Estonian Hall, And now we've got access to this space almost 24-7. So this is our sort of new home, our new, I don't know, mission base, if you want to call it that, as we seek to um, see more people more like Jesus from all nations and use this space uh, to keep doing and realising that vision together. Um, It's nice to see you. And I just want to publicly, I did this on our sort of Slack, our online environment last night, but I just want to publicly say here this morning how thankful I am uh, for those who were able to give their time yesterday to physically kind of shift all of our gear from the Estonian over on Jeffcott Street into here, and also those who were able to stick around and uh, do some cleaning as well. I conveniently had a wedding to officiate yesterday, um, so I didn't have to come. No, um, but uh, big thank you to those who could help yesterday. Really thankful. Um, We're about to start a new sermon series. I've got a question for you, and I'm going to get you to turn to the people around you and talk about this question. Um, Another opportunity to meet your neighbours. Here's the question. How happy are you? How happy are you? Uh, If we define happiness as a sense of well-being and contentment with the state of affairs in your life, how happy are you? Turn to the person next to you. See what they have to say. How happy are you? Definition, sense of well-being, contentment, given the state of affairs in your life. Quick, it's all a bit deep and meaningful today. Have a chat to the person next to you. How happy are you? All right, everybody, let me draw you back together. All right, here we go. How, how happy are you? How happy are you? If, if we go with 10 on the basis of that definition as being like, you know, like super happy, who's a 10? Anyone a 10 this morning? Hey, look at that, a few 10s. Who's a nine? Yeah, right, an eight, a seven, a six, a five. A four, a three, a two, one. Who's like, who needs help? No, um, zero. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind as we um, come to this new series. Let's pray. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for all the good things you give us. We praise you, Father, for the opportunity that we've been given and the door that's open for us to step back into this space and to meet and to worship you here. Uh, Father, we... We know that the church is not a building, the church is your people, uh, your redeemed ones who've come by faith uh, to put their hope in Jesus. And, but we realise that um, buildings are helpful. Uh, they, Father, enable us to have a presence in a community uh, and also to do mission from a spot. And so we just thank you for the provision of this space. We pray that it would be a blessing to us, our church family here at North, and also, Father, more than that, a blessing to the community around us. We long to see more people more like Jesus from all nations. Uh, And so, Father, please 
um, yeah, do your work in us and through us through this place. Father, thank you for our time together this morning around your word, and we pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, we would see Jesus. We pray that by your spirit through your word we would hear Jesus, and by your spirit through your word we pray that we would love Jesus. Desire to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the overflow of that to love our neighbour as ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Today uh, we begin a, a series uh, for the next 11 or 12 weeks or so. It's always a bit of a you know, loose thing on the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, so preachers like me feel a bit of pressure when they have to put together sermons on what is perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached. It's the so-called Sermon on the Mount. Its name came because Jesus gave this sermon when on a mountain, perhaps looked a little bit like those mountains there, a little rolling hill uh, around the area of Galilee. Sermon on the Mount, it's just 2,000 words long or thereabouts, a little longer in the English, a little shorter in the original Greek, but about 2,000 words long. And in the Sermon on the Mount, it kind of contains almost all of the most famous and recognizable sayings of Jesus. Our Father who art in heaven, Sermon on the Mount. Do to others as you would have others do to you. Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge lest you be judged. Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Take the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in the other eye. Sermon on the Mount. And a host of others. And these famous sayings of Jesus come from the Sermon on the Mount. I encourage you to do this. The Sermon on the Mount takes about 15 minutes to read from beginning to end. And some think... That ought to be a guide to how long Sunday morning sermons should be. <laughs> it may seem a little ironic that I'm going to spend this morning, maybe 20, maybe 40 minutes, I don't know, at least a little while this morning on just one word from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, the first word of the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, the first word of each of the first nine lines or nine paragraphs of the Sermon on the Mount. The word... Makarios, blessed. Or in some dictionaries, if you, you know, happen to go home, take off your shelf your old ancient Greek dictionary, open up Makarios, you'll see that the number one headline translation for Makarios or meaning is happy. Blessed is always there, but happy is usually the number one, the headline definition of Makarios. Happy, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy, blessed are those who mourn. Happy, blessed are the meek, and so on. So as we start this series, I want to call this sort of introductory sermon the hunt for happiness. The reason for this is I genuinely believe that the word blessed, as it's used by contemporary Christians, needs to be adjusted a little bit in our minds in the direction of happy. And I certainly believe that the English word happiness, as used in the world more broadly, could be infused with a little more reflection on the deeper notion of blessed. Blessed and happy are not exactly the same idea, but for the Christian they can be. So I want to begin with a bit of a reflection on the hunt for happiness, the pursuit for happiness that is so prevalent in our Australian culture. 
would seem to me, and you may disagree with me, that at the very heart of our Western Australian culture is an unhappy paradox. We are, without doubt, the healthiest and wealthiest society in all of human history. Things you might think, right, health and wealth, that would bring us happiness, right? And yet, paradoxically, we are arguably the least contented, the least satisfied culture in world history. We're the healthiest, the wealthiest, but possibly the least satisfied. This unhappy paradox. I mean, we know, don't we, that the rates of mental illness in Australia are on the rise. And it's not only because of better diagnostic tools, it's not only because of a global pandemic, they certainly have risen, made things rise, but we also know, right, that suicide is now the leading cause of death among Australians aged 15 to 44. Soak that in for a second. Surprisingly, maybe weirdly, the highest rate of suicide is amongst 84-year-olds. It's not just an issue for the young. We live in a very weird time in history. Health and wealth, right? They are the key goals of our culture. Therefore, they're the key goals of governments. It's all they talk about, right? Health and finance, health and wealth, and maybe education from time to time. Things you might think, right, would bring you, bring me, bring us happiness. But beyond doubt, they don't satisfy. Study after study after study after study after study demonstrates that material flourishing offers almost no lasting happiness. We get this like initial bump, right? You, you know this bump, right? When you go and, I don't know, you get a pay rise, you get this little bump. Um, you buy a new car, you get the bump. I buy some new Tiger Onyx Suka sneakers, I get a bump. Buy a new camera, the bump. But what happens, right, is we adapt to the bump and we want more and more and more. The Wall Street Journal some time ago published a review of all the happiness research of recent years and quoted this lady, uh, Sonia Libomirsky, professor of psychology at the University of California. Um, see what she has to say, listen to this. Human beings are remarkably good at getting used to changes in their lives, especially positive changes. If you have a rise in income, it gives you a boost but then your aspirations rise too. Maybe you buy a bigger home in a new neighborhood and so your neighbors are richer and you start wanting even more. You've stepped on the hedonic treadmill. Trying to prevent that or slow it down is a real challenge, she says. Famously, uh, this guy, Dan Gilbert, uh, who is the professor of psychology at Harvard University, he quipped and said this, 90% of the happiness derived from wealth is purchased with the first 10% of our wealth. Now, I'm not sure if he meant that to be like a definitive scientific statement or it was just like a way of getting the audience's attention, but think about it. It does unpack what Gilbert and others have been pursuing for years and years and years now. The research now is really clear. If you've purchased clothing, shelter, and food, the excess money that you spend on your, yourself, the purchases that you make on yourself, offer next to no lasting happiness. 
They'll admit, right, Gilbert, Livermersky, they'll admit you have shelter, you have food, uh, you have clothing, you'll experience some happiness, but any spending beyond that doesn't give you lasting happiness. We get a bump for sure, but then we go back to the baseline. Now, Libermersky and Gilbert are leaders. They are leaders in what is known as positive psychology, the positive psychology movement. Um, positive psychology, it's a legitimate branch of psychology that focuses more on enhancing the healthy as opposed to mending the ill. And it's become a really significant area of psychology over recent years. And one of the fathers of this positive psychology movement is this man, Martin Seligman. Anyone know Martin Seligman? Yeah. Professor of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Now, some years ago, Martin Seligman um, was invited to give a TED Talk, and you can go and chase up his TED Talk on YouTube, right? Um, he gave this really well-known TED Talk, and like within the, I don't know, I've never been invited to give a TED Talk because I talk too long, but apparently um, there, you get 17 minutes or thereabouts. So within the constraints of this TED Talk, Seligman kind of summarizes or tries to outline 40 years of positive psychology research. Now maybe he simplifies it all down a bit, but basically he said that all the data has found that there are three levels of happiness. Right, three levels of happiness. First level is pleasure, pleasure. We are creatures who like pleasurable things and pleasurable experiences, yeah? Whether it's, I don't know, enjoying a glass of wine, you know, if you're of age, a holiday, birthday parties, I don't know, bungee jumping, if you're into bungee jumping. You know, these pleasures, right, are not lasting, but they have a measurable impact. People who have regular pleasurable experiences do have somewhat heightened levels of happiness. By the way, happiness in all of this research is defined as a sense of well-being or contentment about your state of affairs. And pleasurable experiences can give you elevated feelings of contentment, satisfaction. But they suggest a second, a greater level of, of happiness, which Seligman calls coming, flow, there you go, flow. Um, flow, it's not so much pleasure, but as things going kind of well in your life. You know, it's when you have a job that you love, that you're good at, and things are going well. It's when you have a general sense of good health, when you have friends and family, where the relationships with your friends and family are, are generally good and functional. People who have flow, in, in their lives score more highly on the happiness scale compared to those who have lots of pleasurable experiences. Follow me so far? Pleasure, flow. But here's the curious thing. Seligman shows that the research has made pretty clear that there's a third and higher level of happiness which he calls meaning. People who genuinely feel they're connected to a higher purpose in the world tend to score highest in all the happiness measures. And this is true, right? Even if you don't have much pleasure or flow in your life. It's like meaning is the happiness jackpot. When you feel connected to reality, you are more likely to be more content and satisfied more happy with your life. Now, I love this stuff, right? I love this stuff. 
I don't love it as much as my wife, actually. My wife really has gotten into positive psychology stuff lately. You can talk to her later. But I, this, I love this stuff, but it actually makes me chuckle a little bit, this stuff. I mean, no, res- I know, I mean, no disrespect to Libermersky, to Gilbert, or to Seligman, everyone else who's into this, but the reason I chuckle is that the conclusion they arrive at was reached about 2,300 years ago by a guy named Aristotle. Here he is. There you go. Meet Aristotle. You, you're, I'm, I always promised you a, a dead guy, like on a Sunday morning, right? There you go. There he is. Aristotle. Um, he was a famous Greek philosopher, and seriously, he arrived at exactly the same conclusion as the positive psych people, Libermersky, Gilbert, and Seligman. Aristotle wrote a whole book on the hunt for happiness, right, called the Nicomachean Ethics, and he observes that we are happiness-seeking creatures. There's no rocket science here. His word for happiness is eudaimon, which is a dictionary synonym of makarios. Eudaimon means well-being or blissfulness. The intriguing thing about Aristotle, this Greek philosopher, Greek pagan philosopher, is that he said that human beings, we're rational animals, right? We're not just walking stomachs or walking sex organs looking for immediate satiation and pleasure. And a rational animal, he says, could never be satisfied in life by mere pleasure. An animal, a rational animal, will always be seeking what is highest, what is most meaningful. And he basically argued that a rational creature will only be happy when it feels connected to the rationale of the world. Say that again. A rational creature will only feel happy when it feels connected with the rationale of the world. In other words, Aristotle determined that meaning was the key to happiness. That's why Aristotle was so into philosophy, right? What is philosophy? Philosophia, the love of wisdom. And wisdom for Aristotle was two things, a knowledge of what is most real in the universe and knowledge of how to live in accordance with what is real in the universe. The two words which he coined and which we still use today are metaphysics and ethics. Metaphysics, the study of what is highest in the world. Ethics, the study of how to live in tune or in sync with what is highest in the world. So for Aristotle, life is about knowing ultimate reality and for this pagan Greek philosopher, he thought it was God, by the way, and knowing how to live in sync with reality. Pretty interesting, right? For a pagan philosopher just sitting around in Athens wearing a toga, working out the meaning of life. Amazing. So he argued, right, if you participate in the rationale of the world, you'll be happy regardless of whether you experience pleasure or experience flow. And what I find funny is this is exactly the finding of positive psychology, but 2,300 years ago. And the reason, brothers and sisters, that I am laboring this and laying all this out is because Well, the Bible comes to the same conclusion, but way earlier than Aristotle. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible says that the truly happy person is the one who knows ultimate reality and lives in accordance with it. It's metaphysics and it's ethics. If you know the rationale of creation and you live in tune with that, you live in sync with that, you'll be happy. 
And the biblical word for this happy match between knowing reality and living in accordance with it is the word makarios, blessed, the opening word of the Sermon on the Mount. And although we're going to take each section of the Sermon on the Mount in succession and in some detail over the next 11 or 12 weeks or so, I just thought it was really important for us to wind back a little bit to understand this first word of the first nine lines or the first nine paragraphs because we've got to understand blessed, otherwise the whole sermon just won't make sense. In order to understand Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to put on our Old Testament lenses. Um, I don't know if you were here a little while ago and we were doing... um, we were looking at the book of Deuteronomy and I talked about you know, the Pink Floyd album sort of cover you know, with the prism in the middle and the light, the, rain, the light shining in and then the rainbow kind of phew, out the other side. You know, that sort of picture. You know, the Old Testament beams through the life and person and work of the Lord Jesus and then we see what comes out the other side. In order to understand Jesus, we've, we've got to get in tune with the Old Testament backgrounds. And here, the Sermon on the Mount, the first word, is a classic example. You see, long before Seligman, long before Libomirsky, long before Gilbert, way before Aristotle, the Old Testament described the intimate, logical connection between metaphysics, ethics, and the blessed life. Or if you want it more simply, ultimate reality, how to live in accordance with ultimate reality, resulting in true happiness. And one of the great passages to see how this plays out is our Old Testament reading from Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8, if you have it in front of you, is it's an ode to wisdom. It's a poem, uses metaphor. It's a beautiful old uh, ode to wisdom that predates Aristotle. And in this old ode to wisdom, uh, wisdom is personified as a woman. More than that, she's actually personified as God's wife. Now, it's a metaphor, right? But it's a bit of a risky metaphor. Now, what this passage passage says, right? As wisdom speaks, she says, I'm the foundation of the world. I am the way to live your life. I am the way to happiness. I am the structure of the world, the way to live and the path to blessedness. So hold that in your mind, right? As we have a look at a truncated version of Proverbs chapter 8. Um, Have a look with me. Here's Proverbs chapter 8. Little bits of it. My fruit is better than fine gold, wisdom says. My what I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice. Keeps going. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so that the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. Goes on, now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway for those who find me, find life. I hope you can see there, on the one hand, wisdom is about ethics, yeah? 
how to live. So wisdom is about the way of righteousness along the paths of justice. And wisdom at the end of the ode says, listen to me, keep my ways. But here's the thing. Now I know this may all seem slightly nerdy, but the payoff I think is enormous, it's massive. Wisdom is not just about ethics. Wisdom is also about metaphysics. Because what wisdom says is, I was there at the beginning of the world. I am built into the fabric, foundation, and structure of the world. I was there when the Lord set the heavens in place. And then there's all this stuff about how God set this up and how God set that up. And then wisdom says, when he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. This is picking up a theme that is all the way through the Old Testament that says that wisdom is the very structure of creation. So in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19, we read, by wisdom the Lord laid the foundations of the earth. Now, whenever I think about creation, I think about by power God created the heavens and the earth. But no, the biblical idea is by wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. And that very sentence, Proverbs 3.19, is repeated in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12, Jeremiah 51.15, and Psalm 104, verse 24. In other words, wisdom, it's a thing. Wisdom is built into the structure of the world. And here is one of the most important biblical concepts to get our heads and our hearts around. When you obey God's wisdom... You are participating in the rationale of the world. When you obey God's wisdom, you're participating in the rationale of the world. Let me give you an example. Um, Most of us will know Jesus' command in John 13, right? To love one another, right? Jesus says, love one another, yeah? Now, this love command from Jesus is not just an arbitrary command, you know, like Jesus was scratching his head. What can I get my disciples to do? Um, You know, clean the communion cups. And no, like he's not looking for things. It's not arbitrary. When Jesus said, you've got to love one another, he doesn't say that's just a nice thing to do. No, the love command is is the key to an authentic life. Because Jesus taught that the truest thing in the universe is God, and the key attribute of God is love. Therefore, if you want to live a truly authentic life, we are to be animated by the truest thing in all of the universe, and the truest thing in all the universe is love. Love is not an arbitrary duty or burden. It is to participate in reality. Now, that's love. And we'll see this again in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's the same concept here, but in different words. Let me put it in a sentence for you. God's wisdom is his genius, built into the fabric of the world, expressed in his commands for life. Now, this is such a profound thought that I'm really worried that I'm about to trivialize trivialize it by giving you a slightly fatuous analogy. But here goes nothing, right? Ikea. Okay, can we get any more fatuous than that? Ikea. And not just, here we go, not just any Ikea item, but the mighty Leotor. 
the mighty Leotorp, which I'm told is in the top five most sophisticated items that IKEA has ever produced. Anyone put the Leotorp together before? There you go. Now, think about the mighty, think about the mighty Leotorp, right, for a minute. The wisdom of IKEA is built into that product, right, of course. But here's the thing. The wisdom of Ikea is also built into the instruction manual that goes with the Leotorp. It's the same wisdom. It's the genius of Ikea in the product, yeah? The structure, the shape, how it all goes together. But to the degree that you need to know, there's an instruction manual with the same wisdom laid out for you in a series of steps, right? Now those instructions in the manual for the Leotorp, they are not just arbitrary commands or ideas, right? They're the wisdom of the product. This is so important to understand given the analogy with God. Now, now, right, when it comes to the Leotorp and the instruction manual, you may choose, you know, as you build something as sophisticated as the Leotorp, you may choose freedom. Freedom, yeah? Or, or what you think is freedom. I choose to skip steps three to 11. I am going straight to 12, yeah? I'm telling you, by the time you get to step 25, you'll be undoing everything, right, and going back to number two. Has anyone done that? Has anyone gone, I can't even know what they're doing. I'm just gonna jump over. Let's get this done really fast. Anyone, anyone done that? No, you're not, yeah, you're more sensible than me. Anyway, um, my point is, right, the commandments of Ikea aren't arbitrary duties, they are wisdom. It's actually the same wisdom that produced the product. It's participating in the mind of the maker, actually. Can you see where I'm going here? The logical result of following the wisdom of the maker is blessing. And this is why Proverbs ends with blessing. Proverbs 8 ends with Blessing, having said that this is the structure of everything, metaphysics, and this is the way to live your life, ethics, it then says, Proverbs 8, blessed are those who keep my ways. Blessed are those who listen to me. Does that sound like something else? Does it sound like the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who? Blessed are the. Blessing is not just an arbitrary reward for good behavior. It's not like you know, the Lord stands back and says, oh, Tom and Maggie, you did a nice thing today. You did what I asked you to do. I'm gonna bless you, Tom and Maggie. Be blessed, Cowolds, for obeying me. It's not what this is about. You know, our relationship with the living God is based on faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We don't earn our salvation. It's a gift. It's grace. It's given to us. We come to God with empty hands, desperately in need of salvation. This is not about you know, doing the right thing in order to receive a reward or a prize from God. Now, the blessing of obeying God's commandments is a little bit like the blessing, I don't know, of having the author of the book you love sit down with you and take you through a reading of the book. Or, or sitting down with the playwright of a play you love and having that playwright just talk you through and acting out the play and how it all should work. Or if you prefer, it's the blessing of following the maker's instructions. Obeying God 
is participating in the inner logic of the world. And the Sermon on the Mount reflects this same idea. The Sermon on the Mount, which we will get to a bit more next week, is about blessing through wisdom. That's why we spent this morning looking at blessing and wisdom. The Sermon on the Mount begins with nine statements of blessing. Sermon on the Mount ends, chapter seven, with a paragraph all about wisdom. And this is not accidental. If you have Matthew open in front of you, turn with me to the very last paragraph of this very famous sermon, um, Matthew chapter seven, verse 24 and 26. As Jesus ties it all together, lands the plane as they encourage preachers to do, he talks about wisdom. Uh, Matthew seven and verse 24. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine Right? Here's the conclusion. Everyone who's heard me say over the last sort of 14 and a half minutes, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, turn the other cheek, judge not lest you be judged, go the extra mile, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All that stuff. He says, blessed are those who hear my words and put them into practice. He is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears the words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus closes, sorry, the Sermon on the Mount by saying, these words are our foundation for your life. Not in an arbitrary sense that if you do these things, God will bless you or reward you or give you a gold sticker or give you a prize. No, but in that deep structural sense, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is God's very wisdom his genius that is built into the fabric of the word, world expressed in these commandments. And so brothers and sisters, we are blessed if we follow Jesus' words. You know, just as we're blessed when we build our lives on the only sure ground in town. Jesus, by the way, doesn't promise pleasure. Jesus doesn't even promise flow. In fact, we'll discover in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus warns against chasing pleasure. And we'll also discover that his, we'll also discover that for his followers, we'll actually, if we trust in the Lord Jesus and follow him, we'll actually get unflow, actually. In other words, persecution. And this final analogy makes it clear that it's not all flow and pleasure in Matthew 7. Sure, your house is built on the solid foundation of the word of Jesus, on his life and on him himself. But there are waves, there is wind, there is rain. But the thing is, you're stable and secure on these words in Christ. The Sermon on the Mount does promise happiness. 
in the true sense. What Martin Seligman calls meaning, what Aristotle called eudaimon, what the Bible calls makarios, blessed. Participating in the very rationale, the very meaning of God's word, world. What could be more meaningful? What could be more satisfying? What could bring us more contentment than that? Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh Lord, uh, give us ears to hear, uh, minds to understand, and and hearts, Father, open to your word. Uh, Father, our, our culture is so messed up, chasing after things that unravel our own souls. We beg you to forgive us, to forgive our nation for participating in so many things that are so unreal, that are unhelpful and shallow. We thank you for your grace. Praise you, Father, for your wisdom and ask that by your spirit, you'd help us to participate in your genius. Help us to understand these words of Jesus. And Father, give us the strength to put them into practice. And so build our lives on the only solid rock, the Lord Jesus and his words knowing that building our lives on his words, trusting in the Lord Jesus, come what may, means we are stable and secure, come whatever comes. So Father, we pray that as we open up this part of your word, the Sermon on the Mount, Father, teach us, change us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your son, our wisdom, our redeemer, and our life. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church.